Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. As you do, join me in prayer. Well, Lord, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Lord, bend our ears, our hearts, our wills, bend our entire being to your word, to your truth. We might humbly submit to you, our God, our King, our Lord, our Sovereign. Bless your church, Lord, today. Do this day's work in your church that we might be sanctified, that we might know you, that we might enjoy your grace today. Lord, I pray you teach us to live well. You'd help us to see the certainty of our death, the uncertainty of our lives, and you'd help us to see the path of joy that you've called us to in these fleeting lives. Lord, you help us to see, open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things in your word. Help me to preach this, your word, to your people. Help me to preach as a dying man to dying men, knowing that you're at work in the preaching of your word. We trust you in this moment. We bank our hope on you. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior. And we pray in his great name. Amen. Amen. Church family, so good to see you, to worship with you this morning. I love you. Super thankful for you and all that God is doing in our midst. Let's do some work in Ecclesiastes 9 this morning in our study of the book of Ecclesiastes. We just have a handful of chapters left, and we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 through 12 this morning. And so follow along in your copy of Scripture. As I read this portion of God's Word over us, Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 through 12, the preacher says, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. For they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, that he has given you under the sun. Because this is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. 
Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. This is the voice of our Creator. This is the very Word of God. May He stamp its truth on our hearts. Before there was such a thing as Instagram Reels, if you wanted a dose of entertainment that was short and succinct, you would read a comic strip. And one of the best comic strips of all time was Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin was a little boy about six years old, and Hobbes was his stuffed tiger who would at some times come to, to life in Calvin's imagination. Calvin and Hobbes was a very serious comic strip that dealt with life and death and issues that are very important in a cute and light package. And in one particular series of comic strips, Calvin and Hobbes captured the disillusionment that we all feel when we think about the certainty and futility of our own death. Calvin finds a baby raccoon who has been hurt and is barely alive. Calvin immediately goes and gets his mom because moms know how to fix everything. However, when his mom gets there, she realizes that it is most likely that the raccoon is going to die. But she agrees to take the raccoon home, put it in a box, give it a warm place to stay in the garage, and give it some food in hopes that it would revive. It's evident that Calvin has gotten very attached to this injured raccoon because he even offers to share his own dinner with the raccoon. Before Calvin and Hobbes go to bed... Little Calvin looks into the box where the raccoon lays and says, Don't die, little raccoon. It wouldn't be very grateful of you to break my heart. Well, after a sleepless night, Calvin wakes up and asks his dad about the raccoon. His dad regretfully informs him that the raccoon has died. Calvin cries and cries and cries. And after his dad seeks to comfort him, Calvin says that he's crying because even though the raccoon is gone, he is not gone inside of him, in his heart. Well, they bury the little raccoon and Calvin says something very profound for a comic strip. Calvin says, I didn't even know he existed a few days ago and now he's gone forever. It's like I found him for no reason. I had to say goodbye as soon as I said hello. The comic strip then ends with Calvin and Hobbes walking away from the raccoon's grave. And Calvin exclaims in frustration, what a stupid world. If you've never felt Calvin's deep frustration with this world, if you've never stood over a grave and thought, what a stupid world, let me introduce you to the book of Ecclesiastes. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is a meditation on the truth of Romans chapter 8 that the entire creation, the entire creation has been subjected to futility because of sin. Everything 
has been tainted by the fall. And the clearest evidence of this world's futility, the most clear evidence that everything has been subjected to futility is death itself. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. God told Adam in the Garden of Eden that disobedience would mean sure death. And so both physical death and spiritual death is a consequence of our sin. The reason all die is because all have sinned. Death is a constant reminder that the curse of sin is universal. The death rate has always been and is still one per person. No one and no thing escapes death. Unless the Lord Jesus returns, we will all die. We know that theologically. We know that theologically, but we also know that all too well experientially. And therefore... To ignore this truth, to ignore or to downplay our certain upcoming death is the height of foolishness. The way of wisdom is not to disregard death, but to let it teach us how to live well in this fleeting world. Or to use young Calvin's language, how to live well in this stupid world. That's the message of Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Death is inevitable. Therefore, enjoy life. Death is inevitable. Therefore, enjoy life. In the midst of the graveyard around us, feast with joy. In the midst of the cemetery of life, death and decay and futility all around us, the message of this chapter of this book is Find joy in what God has given in this life. Ecclesiastes 9 fleshes out something that Moses learned. In Psalm 90 verse 12, Moses prayed this profound prayer. Teach us, Lord, to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we might live with wisdom. In other words, understanding the certainty of our own death, the brevity of our life, should lead us to live with wisdom now. Death is an instructor. It teaches us how to live well. Indeed, I would argue from this passage and from other places in Scripture, That you only learn to live well when you face the reality of your death regularly. It might be a little bit of an overstatement, but I think it's this passage right here in the middle of Ecclesiastes 9. That's the reason why I think God led me to say, let's preach all the way through the book of Ecclesiastes. Because I want to learn to live well in light of the certainty of my own death. So let's consider how this passage teaches us to live in this world with wisdom and in the fear of the Lord. This passage, once again, can be viewed as a chiasm, where the main point is in the middle. And so we're going to look at the certainty of death in verses 1 through 6. We're going to look at the uncertainty of life in verses 11 and 12. 
But then we're going to see the main point in the middle of this passage, verses 7 through 10. But first, let's look at the, the first section, the certainty of death. Number one, the certainty of death. These first six verses of chapter 9, the preacher focuses on something he's already been touching on again and again throughout this book, but that he clearly explains here in detail. He talks about the certainty of death for everyone. No one escapes death. Let's look at what it says closely. Notice verse 1. The preacher gives this theological framework for how he's viewing the world around him. He says he's considered how everyone's deeds are in the hands of God. In other words, God is in control, he says, of all of life. Everyone's deeds are in God's hand. Now, at the end of chapter 8, we saw last week that he reminded us that life is a mystery. We cannot figure out, no matter how wise we are, what life is about. And here, he says, that's God's good design. God designed it so that we couldn't figure out life on our own. God is in control, and man does not understand God's ways. He even says in verse 1 that we don't even know whether the things that happen to us are evidence of God's love or evidence of God's hate. The events of our lives could be interpreted either way. But what we do know is in verse 2. Notice it. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is he who shuns an oath. And so notice the preacher gives six opposing pairs of people to definitively communicate that he's talking about everyone, right? It is the same for all. No matter if you're among the right, righteous or the wicked. No matter if you're among the pure or the impure. The rich or the poor. Black or white. Jew or Gentile. Male or female. Sinner or saint. Religious or pagan. He says the same event happens to all. Now, it becomes clear that this event that he's referring to in this passage is the event of death. The same event happens to them all. What event? The event of death. Look at verse 3. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. The same event happens to every person, no matter who they are, and that is the event of death. Death is certain for everyone under the sun. Notice the preacher calls this an evil. Now, I think the sense in which he's saying that, that this is an evil, is he's saying that's not right. This isn't right. This isn't how it was supposed to be. We talked about this last week in chapter 8. That life is not fair. Right? You would think that the righteous and the pure would not meet the same event as the unclean and the wicked. Right? There should be some distinction between these groups of people. But he says, nope. They all meet the same fate. In other words, you can't be righteous enough or pure enough to escape the certainty of your own death. There's nothing you can do in this life that will change the fact that you will die. 
This is the sobering truth that the preacher wants us to realize and embrace because he wants this truth to teach us wisdom. He wants us to be sobered by this so that we might respond with wisdom. Now, this is incredibly hard for us to look squarely in the eyes because we live in a culture that does its absolute best to mask the reality of death and dying. We have figured out in our culture how to cope with the fear of death. We simply ignore it for as long as we possibly can. We've created in our culture all kinds of diversions to avoid the reality that deep down inside we are terrified of death. We're terrified of suffering, of pain, of loss of control, of what lies beyond death. Terrified of being forgotten and dying alone. From the perspective of life under the sun, friends, death is life's only certainty. Therefore, to ignore it, to divert our eyes away from it, to just sort of move quickly past it, is not wisdom, but is folly. You can't learn from your death how to live your life if you ignore it. That's the preacher's point. One of his main points here is that it's better to be alive for this very reason. Only the living have the ability to be taught by death. When you die, there's no more opportunity to learn about how to live well. Now, as we consider verses 4 through 6, remember that the preacher is examining and testing and observing from a merely earthly viewpoint. He's intentionally limiting his research to what can be observed with his eyes in this life under the sun. And so he isn't trying to teach here a theology of the afterlife or, what he, or what's going to happen when we die. We have the rest of Scripture that clearly teaches on these truths. We saw last week that the preacher clearly believes that this life is not all there is. But he observes here life as, as it can be known by the senses. He observes only what he can observe in this life under the sun. And so he says in verse 4 that being alive is better than being dead because the living still have hope. And the proverb he gives to support that is, a living dog is better than a dead lion. So the next time someone asks you how you're doing, instead of saying, well, I'm here, aren't I? Or I'm upright and mobile, aren't I? Say, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, in Solomon's day, they didn't view dogs like we view dogs. They're not man's best friend. Dogs were scavengers. They were not beloved pets. And so, to better understand how they view dogs, think of how we view rats. Dogs were despised. They were gross. They were scavengers. However, lions were the most regal of all creatures. They were often used to symbolize the reign of kings. They were majestic and strong. But Solomon says a living dog, a living rat is better than a dead lion. In other words, to be alive is better than being dead. He says life is to be preferred to death. Why? Why is that true, Solomon? Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever... They have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Now again, 
we have the glorious knowledge that death ushers us into the presence of King Jesus. We know what a glorious eternity awaits those who are adopted into God's family. But Solomon didn't have all of that revelation. And he's viewing death merely from the standpoint of life under the sun. When someone dies, we have no idea where they go or what they're doing, right? That's the preacher's point. We can't see where they are or what happens to them. The living have hope because they know they will die. The living can learn from their death how to enjoy the good gifts God has given to them. In other words, death can be a teacher if we allow it to instruct us. And so welcome to church this morning. You will die. Your death is certain. This isn't the happy, clappy message we'd prefer to hear. We'd much prefer the, the pep talk about how all things are, are going to be all right. But this is the truth. And the sooner that we embrace this, the certainty of our death, the sooner we can get to enjoying the few days under the sun that God has given to us. That's the point. That's the first point, number one, the certainty of death. But notice what he also says, secondly, the uncertainty of life. The uncertainty of life in verses 11 and 12. So the preacher continues to press home the certainty of our death by discussing the uncertainty of our life. Notice his observations in verses 11 and 12. He says, again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Now this is incredibly insightful about life in this world. The fastest people don't always win the race, do they? Because sometimes something happens to keep them from winning the race. The strongest person doesn't always win the fight because there are other factors to consider. The wisest and most intelligent people don't always get the highest paying job. Why do these unexpected things sometimes happen? He says, because time and chance happen to them all. Now the word chance here is literally the word happening. Time and happenings happen to them all. You can't predict the outcome of a race or a fight 100% of the time, even when there's a clear favorite, because there is such a thing as the unexpected. Notice the clearly obvious statement of verse 12, for man does not know his time. Another way to put that in this context is man does not know how long he will live. Death will come unexpectedly for many. Many times death comes to people like a fish that is caught in a net. The fish didn't wake up that morning thinking, man, I hope I get caught in a net. No, he was just trying to find something to eat. And his life is over. Same with the bird caught in a trap. In the same way, he says, people are snared by death when they least expect it. From our perspective, it seems like, like death suddenly falls upon people without warning. Now, we could list a bunch of sad examples here of how this is 
true of how life could unexpectedly end at any moment. We all know those examples. But the preacher's point is that we shouldn't assume we're going to live until we're 90 years old. As James would say, your life is a mist. You're here today, gone tomorrow. You have no idea when your heart is going to stop beating. You can't predict these things because you are not sovereign. Time and chance happen to us all. From our perspective, it seems like death is random. It seems like it's unexpected. Augustine once said, nothing is so certain as death and nothing is so uncertain as the hour of death. One commentator on this passage said it this way. He said, we tend to live as if the one thing that is certain will never come, while the many things that are uncertain are certain. We tend to ignore death as if it isn't certain, and we tend to think that what is uncertain that we'll live to see tomorrow is certain. Yes, 95 times out of 100, the fastest person is going to win the race. The brilliant usually do get the highest paying jobs, But not always. Sometimes situations arise, circumstances, various unforeseen events occur. We cannot know the future. Just like the fish gliding happily along or just like the bird swooping in for a worm, they are suddenly caught in a trap that they never saw coming. And so happenings happen to us all. We cannot know when the disaster or the illness or the accident will be thrust upon us. Life is uncertain. So, we should allow both the certainty of our death and the uncertainty of its timing sober us and teach us to live with wisdom in this world. One of the preacher's points is to say, we aren't dead yet. And so how should we live in light of this knowledge? That's the main point, the middle section here, verses 7 through 12, 7 through through 10. Therefore, enjoy the life God has given you. Therefore, enjoy the life God has given you. So it would be tragic to be given this one life by God, this one life that is uncertain, that will end in a certain death, it would be tragic to waste this life that God has given. And so once again, as he has done at least five or six times already in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher commends joy as our response to the futility of life. In fact, verses 7 through 10 of chapter 9 is the strongest joy passage in this book. There is an urgency to this call for joy here. Notice it again, verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that He has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Notice these are imperatives, action words. 
commands. The preacher calls us to action here. It's as if he's saying we cannot waste another moment. It's as if he's saying stop nursing your anger. Stop brooding about your problems. Stop fearing death. Stop lamenting about the uncertainty of life. Stop stressing about all that death is going to take from you. Go, eat, drink, enjoy, do. There are five specifics here the preacher calls us to. So here's the application right here in the passage. Here's the application to the certainty of our death and the uncertainty of our lives. Five specifics the preacher calls us to. Number one, he says, eat and drink with joy. Eat and drink with joy. How should death teach you how to live? It should cause you to go eat and drink with joy. Food And drink is a wonderful gift from our gracious God. Food and drink is a gift that is to be enjoyed with pleasure. Aren't you grateful for the variety of tastes that God has given to us? Think of the taste of some of your favorite foods And as you think of how good that food is, remember that God is a happy and generous God who has given us not only that food, but he's given us the taste buds to enjoy it. And so slow down and savor the taste of food and drink more often. Now, it's worth noting here that wine was a common drink in Solomon's day. This is clearly not intended to be a license to drink to excess or to get drunk on alcohol. The Bible strongly condemns drunkenness as folly. Please hear that clearly. The Bible strongly condemns drunkenness as folly. But the Bible does not condemn all drinking of alcohol. It is not a sin to enjoy a glass of wine with modesty and self-control. You have to use wisdom for your own situation, your own family, your own history as to how to do that. But but don't cast judgment on those who see this differently. But the point here is that God has given us all kinds of tasty beverages to enjoy with a merry heart. And we can enjoy them with a merry heart. Notice he says, because God has already approved what you do. Let the hearer understand. It's just not a blank check to do whatever you think and think that God approves of it. I think this is a reference back to the Garden of Eden where God put man in paradise in the garden with all kinds of good food and drink and He put a husband and a wife together in this paradise with no clothes on. God approved it. He stamped his approval. He said, my pleasure is in your pleasure in the good gifts that I have given you. After all, God is the inventor of joy and pleasure and fun, right? So God has already approved what you do is a reference to the fact that God has given these good gifts. And therefore, he wants us to enjoy them as an expression of our enjoyment in him. You see, we misuse God's good gifts when we use them for selfish ends, we glorify the giver when we receive those good gifts and allow them to remind us of His generosity and of His love toward us. Every good food, every tasty drink that we enjoy with a merry heart 
is a gift from our Creator in which He said, enjoy yourself. I find pleasure in your enjoyment of my good gifts. God takes pleasure in our pleasure of Him. They are good gifts of our Creator and our Redeemer. So go, He says, and enjoy food and wine with a merry heart. Secondly, how do we apply the certainty of our own death and the uncertainty of our life. He says, wear festive garments. Wear festive garments. So he says, let your garments be always white in verse 8. Now, white was a popular color in Solomon's world because of the hot and arid climate. White garments were the garments of parties, festivals. And so this is an encouragement to dress up and enjoy life. In response to the certainty of your own death, enjoy the moments God gives. Have fun. Be fun. Smile and laugh and enjoy as an expression of your faith in King Jesus. Wear festive garments. Third, he says, take care of yourself. Take care of yourself. Verse 8 the preacher says, let not oil be lacking on your head. Now again, in the climate of the day, oil was important to keep skin protected from the elements. It was important for feeling and looking your best. And so the preacher is commanding us to take care of ourselves. In other words, it's wrong-minded to think, well, what's the point of taking my medicine? Or what's the point of smelling nice if I'm just going to die anyway? No. You're going to die, yes, so take care of yourself. The few days that God has given you in this life under the sun, you will feel better and you will look better if you take care of yourself as an expression of your joy in your Creator. Fourth, he says enjoy your spouse. Enjoy your spouse. Notice the command in verse 9 is actually the command enjoy life. Enjoy life. Life. How do we do that? How do we enjoy life, Solomon? Well, he says if we're married, we should enjoy life with the spouse God has given to us. Husbands, your wife is to be your best friend in this fleeting life. You're to do life with her. You're to enjoy life with the wife that you love. Wives, enjoy life. With the husband of your love. Enjoy your spouse physically, emotionally, spiritually. If ever there were a command to work on and focus on making your marriage the best that it can possibly be, this is it. If ever there were a command that says, don't just, oh, we're married, that's it, we're just going to do our own separate things. Here it is, enjoy life together with your spouse. Fifth, he says, work heartily. What do we do in response to the certainty of our own death and the uncertainty of life? He says, work heartily. He says, verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Because this life is fleeting, because this life is vain, because this life is so short, do your work heartily. If God has provided you a job to do, do it for His glory. Be a hard worker. Wake up every morning saying, God, help me to work heartily. Help me to work with my might today. You've given me might. Help me to use it in working for you. You see, there's something this world doesn't understand. 
The lazy sluggard thinks there's more joy in procrastinating. The lazy sluggard said, man, I'm, all these people out there working hard, look at me. I'm just going to enjoy this life up. But what he doesn't realize is what the hard worker has learned. The hard worker has learned a secret. The harder one works for God, the happier one he is. The more might that we use in the service of our king, the more he blesses us with his power and his presence and his grace. Oh, and we could expand this list out to many other ways that we are to enjoy life, enjoy the simple things, live each day to the fullest, find pleasure in the pleasure of God in our pleasure. Remember our ice cream cone illustration? You can't save an ice cream cone for later. You can't grab a hold of it too tightly in hopes of sort of not losing it. All you can do is, all you can do is enjoy it while you have it. Before it melts into a puddle, enjoy it. Yeah, share it with others, enjoy it. And the same is true with life. It will be over soon. It will be over soon. Death is certain. And so enjoy the few days of life under the sun that God has given you. Well, let me conclude with a question. And the question is, how does our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, help us apply and embrace this passage in Ecclesiastes? How should we see Jesus in Ecclesiastes chapter 9? I think there are at least two main ways, and I'll conclude with this. First, Jesus is the great crusher of death's sting. Jesus is the great crusher of the sting of death. See, death is the great leveler of all people. We will all die. And Jesus leveled death through his death and through his resurrection. Jesus came to crush the futility of death. He came to give meaning and life to this, this stupid life in this, in this world, this fleeting life. We don't have to fear death because Jesus crushed it by taking the death that we deserved upon himself. And so treasure Jesus and treasure his death on the cross for you today. As you think about the certainty of your own death, remember that your Savior crushed death's sting. Secondly, how should we see Jesus in this passage? Jesus is the great purchaser of life's joys. Jesus is the great purchaser of life's joys. See, sinners like us have no business enjoying God's good gifts. We deserve wrath and condemnation from God. And yet we get good things from Him? Like, how can God be just and still allow sinners to enjoy all the good things He's provided in this life only because of Jesus? The answer is only Jesus. Because Jesus won for us the ability to enjoy food and drink and marital love. Only through Jesus can we enjoy with a merry heart. And so let every taste and every good drink and every good party and every good medicine and every good moment with your spouse and every ounce of strength you have to work hard, let it all remind you of the beauty and glory of King Jesus, your Savior. He purchased it all for you. What a Savior. What a Savior. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are indeed a great Savior. You are the crusher of death's sting. 
you, through your death, have won for us the right to live with joy and pleasure in this world. And so, Lord, you are the purchaser of life's joys. Help us to honor you, to treasure you, to believe you by living with joy in the here and now. Oh God, I pray that you would help us to apply these past, this passage, these verses to our lives in all the various ways that you want us to. I pray for some serious adjustment. As we think about the ways that we just sort of float through life without really contemplating the certainty of our death, the uncertainty of our lives, and the, the vast joy that you've called us into. Oh God, I pray that you would help us to repent of the ways that we have been curmudgeons, that we have been, that we have been living with despair and discouragement. Lord, help us to repent and to turn to you and say, Lord, fill us with your joy. Fill us with your joy. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for laying down your life for us. It is in you alone that we trust, in you alone that we cling to. We pray you'd help us to do that right now. We pray it in your name. Amen.